This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey, Cultivated listeners. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning into the show. Uh, a couple things to know about this particular episode. Uh, it features my friend, uh, Dr. Heather Lewis. She's an OBGYN. Um, during the recording, actually, my wife and her husband were also in the room, so you'll hear some laughter and the occasional uh, comment from them in the background. But also, just a, a content warning. Uh, we are talking to an OBGYN about her work, and so this may not be the most friendly episode for your kiddos, uh, unless they're prepared to hear about the stuff that OBGYNs have to deal with. So, thanks for listening. Here we go with the show. I just thought we'd kind of walk through your story and then okay. and then talk about, um, you know, just various aspects of your work and, okay. you know, don't get serious all of a sudden. Okay. <laughs> I don't like talking to people and like looking them straight in the face right. when I do pap smears. Can... Like I, my favorite thing is when they lay down so I don't have to look them in the eye while because they're like laying and you can talk to them much more comfortably then it's like That's... awkward. I would like look to the side. And now we have the cold open of the show. So. <laughs> uh, There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on. It seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and like I said, I'm talking to my friend, Heather Lewis. We talk about the challenges of medicine, the challenges of loving patients, and we talk about her wild background and her mom's wild background and how she became who she became. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. Maybe we should start with your mom a little bit, like okay. to know where you came My from. My mom's always the best story. Your mom like, is a great yeah, story. Uh, she's a great story. So talk about where she came from. Um, so I was thinking about um, her just kind of growing up and all that a lot lately. I've, I don't know, just some of her, the way she is and her life has to do with that. But she um, was like a baby boomer. Her mom got pregnant when... Um, her father had gone to World War II and was like home or coming home from World War II when she got pregnant. And um, so she wasn't really, her mom didn't really want to be pregnant. And it was that generation where like women are really kind of like, you don't really want a daughter. So she kind of grew up in a house where like they didn't expect much of her to do anything, to be anything, to have any accomplishments. And I don't know. I mean, I think they loved her in their way, but I almost could say that she had parents that didn't love her, almost. Mm. Um, I think they did in their way, and they're kind of cold. Um, um, and just that generation, I think that it wasn't a generation that you spent a lot of time like loving on your kids and spending time with your kids and trying to have your kids be the best version of themselves. I think about this a lot lately, actually, because I have a child who is has a lot of the artistic and sensibilities that my mom does. And I think about how much we like nurture her and like promote that artist side of her. And we think of that as like something she could make a career out of and something that she could really do something with in her life. But my mom, that, that nobody ever spent any time on that. My mom really is a is a really creative, interesting. She's a really good writer. Mm. She's very articulate. Um, all the big words I know come from my mom. Actually, not medical school, but you know, and and she's well read, and you know, she just she has this interesting brain. But she was always told she was dumb, you know, because she mm. didn't you know make straight A's in math or whatever the traditional things that you were supposed to do well in it during that generation. 
And I think about the dichotomy between that and like this generation of children that we're raising, you know, a generation removed from my mom, um, where my kid who is has those kind of similar things is like making straight A's in school and doing really well because we like foster the things about her that she's good at and we get her help in the things that she's not good at and that stuff. Um, so anyway, but um, so she kind of grew up like that. And so when she was. Um, 18 when she finally graduated high school um, she moved to California it was the 60s and um, just wanted to kind of find herself create her own identity um, and so got involved in every stereotype you can picture of the 60s she was involved in hmm. um, things that were legal illegal what have you right. um, but um, so she was at one point she was in a cult um, <laughs> well I'll tell that one last because that one is the last one but she she was in actually a couple cults one of them was one of the kind of like yogi the people that go to the the I don't think they were Buddhists per se, but right. similar to the people who shaved their head. Where Don Draper went at the end of Mad Men. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what she was in. Well, she lived there, and um, she worked in an advertising agency, and they would give their paychecks to the community. Hmm. They slept on the little mats on the floor. You gave all your possessions away. Like, she lived there. And then she kind of got tired of that life. She It was kind of boring, and um, so she um, joined the Hells Angels. She was a <laughs> old lady for a guy of the same Francisco Hells Angels and was in that life for a while and has some absolutely insane stories from that. She met Janis Joplin and oh, like, wow. I mean, just crazy things. Um, because the, back then they used to hire the Hells Angels for security for right. music events. And so right. she would be with, anyway, so she was involved in all the crazy things in the 60s there. And then, um, then she joined another cult, which was... I mean, it, when you talk about like the the setup for cults, it always sounds so bizarre. Like, why would you choose that? But it, when right. you're in it, I guess it doesn't. But it was based on. It was called the Everyman Theater, and it was based on. They did plays, <laughs> <laughs> and then they all like lived in a commune. And the the plays, they would do these plays at night, and then go to work during the day. But the guy who was like the you know kind of head of the cult was wanting all the women to get pregnant. And he had an island near San Francisco that he had purchased hmm. and he was going to bring all the children to the island with him. And I don't I don't know what was, you know, what the plan was, but um, he wanted all the women and children to have baby, other women to have babies and to take all the children and the women to the island. And then the men were going to stay behind and work and support the the, the theater group because it was the whole goal was to like make these amazing plays I, I, I don't yes. <laughs> it's so bizarro right. so anyway so she that's how she met my father they actually had an arranged marriage because the, mm. the guy the head was arranging marriages left and right so people would get pregnant well my mom had was unable to get pregnant and so they would beat my father um because you know he'd come to the play at night and they'd say you know is your wife pregnant yet and I mean I you know this is the stories over the years so I don't know what the logistics of that how often he got beat or whatever but he was getting beat up by these guys because mm. she wasn't getting pregnant and um, so they kind of got scared I think she just thought this is this is more crazy than the, all the other crazy things I've done and uh, we need to get away so they moved to Florida and she was a waitress there so this this whole time, you know, she's just like searching for meaning, searching for just something to make her life meaningful and happy. And so she was a waitress at a, at a restaurant there. And there was a pastor that would always come in and get his coffee in the morning. And she um, was one day around Easter time, she kind of thought... I would love to have a picture of Jesus. She just had this idea that she wanted a picture of him to just like look at. I don't know if she would give her comfort or whatever. Because the the other part of the story is that the arranged marriage to my father, he was a very violent alcoholic and it was just a really difficult time for her. So they were she thought, well, we get away from the cult, it'll be better, he'll be better. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't. And so, you know, she's working and and he's who he is, and it was it was a very difficult time for her. So she just had this kind of idea that she, maybe she wanted picture of Jesus. And she asked the pastor and the pastor said, well, you know, I don't have a picture, but I can, you know, I can do something better. I could tell you about Jesus, you know, come to my church after or whatever. And so um, she wasn't sure about that. She wasn't really going to interested in doing that. Um, but that movie Jesus of Nazareth was on the TV 
kind of during that time, it was around Easter time, and um, she said, I went home, made sure I wanted to watch that every night. It was like a week-long thing. And she said, the night that Jesus was crucified on the TV, I watched it, and I still, every time I tell the story, I cry, but um, she said, I watched it, and I looked at him on the cross, and I knew that I had put him there. Hmm. But she didn't have any of the idea that there was hope in that. It was just the devastation of the realization that this perfect, innocent man died, and it's totally my fault. Mm. And it was only that. It was only the night. There was no, you know, Sunday morning in her thinking of that. Um, and so when she went back to the um, uh, her work, um, she said to the pastor, okay, you know, I'll talk to you. I'll mm. talk to you. And so he met with her, and he just gave her the gospel, and she said, I don't believe you that this actually is real. Like, why Jesus like is going to forgive me for all the things that I've done? Um, but she said, "But I, I want that. If he's if he's willing to do that, I take it." And I think I think she did become a believer that day. But I think it was it was a long time of because I mean I do think there are some like moment conversions, but I think mm -hmm. there's also sometimes where there's a conversion where you accept it, but you don't know if you really believe it yet, and you yeah. have to kind of live it to see. And so then she became a believer. So she so they had been married for like nine years and she wasn't getting pregnant and um they moved again he was you know in and out of jobs and drinking and just all these issues that he had so they moved back up to where um, he was from in maine and um she met a woman at another job she was at who was a believer and they just kind of did a little bible study and my mom said you know i want i just want to be pregnant you know but it had been mm. years and years and she couldn't get pregnant and um and the woman said well we're gonna pray every single day for 30 days and on the 30th day you will be pregnant mm. <laughs> and so right. you know sometimes god uses uh uses kind of some sketchy theology to help people <laughs> but um so they did and the story goes she was i was she was pregnant with me on the 30th day so mm. um Anyway, so that's my, my backstory. Yeah. Yeah. For you, I mean, the way she raised you was kind of the polar opposite of what she Yeah, so she, um, like I said, she just, she's one of those people that was never appreciated for all the things about her, but she is just, she's a really compassionate person. She's a really, she, when she has a friend, she will do anything for that friend. She just mm. cares about them. She's really interesting. She's smart. She's artistic. She just has a lot of just these amazing qualities about her personality that nobody ever appreciated. Mm. And I think part of her, even though she was married to this abusive alcoholic, people are like, why would you want to get pregnant if you're in this horrible situation? But I think part of it was she always hoped that if she had a baby, then someone would love her. Like, I, do, I, I don't know if she ever was loved before I was born, you know? Mm. And so I think that um, she had this kind of dream or hope in her heart that maybe she could have a little baby that would love her back. Mm -hmm. And um, and it did because, I mean, she just devoted herself to me. And I mean, I think it's funny, you know, you think about kids. I see this at work some where parents are a little distant or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Children love their parents. You mm -hmm. know, you need them. You love them, especially at those young ages. Um, and if you prove yourself worthy, they continue to love you as an adult. But <laughs> but when they're little, they just it's just in our nature. We need our parents. And so we love them. And so um, but she just she kind of just devoted her entire life to to loving me. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we had a really violent, tumultuous uh early years together um, but we were alone together a lot and mm -hmm. so I think that that kind of cemented that bomb we were like a little team that yeah. you know had to stay quiet in the middle of the storm but um, when even when uh, later in life she remarried and you mm -hmm. know we had a little bit more easy days even then we just that kind of bond that we had was mm -hmm. pretty cemented by that point so yeah so she and her dad divorced yeah. and yeah and so yeah. she remarried and, and she remarried. Um, but um, but yeah, so we, you know, those next years were were better. But so if this is somewhat about my job, one of the st stories she always tells about this is that um, so I was probably five or six when they started getting together and they got married when I was seven. And one time when my stepfather, who was my dad, I mean, he raised me, but um, when one time he had done something really nice or bought my mom something nice. And she said, Heather, when you grow up, you need to make sure. I mean, she always told me that she wanted me to marry a version of my stepfather, not a version of my biological <laughs> father. That was, you know, I'm sure on her radar of concerns. But um, she said, you know, when you grow up, you need to make sure you find a man who is going to 
do these lovely things for you and buy you these wonderful things and care for you and you know have you have a nice home and I looked at her and I she she says I was six when this happened I don't know but um, I looked at her and I said when I grow up I'm gonna make my own money and buy my own things (laughs) (laughs) so but I do think I mean I do you know we talk about like um there's this book that I love that I'm going to promote, which is called uh, The Body Keeps the Score, oh, yeah. which is about like childhood traumas and, and adult traumas and just traumas in general and how they affect you in your whole life. But one thing in just growing up and being an adult and learning about these things, um, I do think that the reason I do what I do today, 100% would not occur without that, that childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I somewhere inside of me, whether it was subconsciously or not, always knew I have to be able to be 100% independent, never rely on anybody else ever, Hmm. my mom, my dad, a man, whatever, like I'm going to be able to support myself because um, I don't ever want to be in that vulnerable position. Because I mean, we were, it was bad. There were years we were on food stamps. And interestingly, back then in the 70s in Massachusetts, you couldn't put a child in daycare until they were two years old. Hmm. And so when he left us, we were, you know, I was a baby and she had a high school education and she couldn't put me in daycare. And so we were on welfare and living in public housing. And um, that was bad. And um, so anyway, so I think that kind of shaped my I think there's always a little bit of fear. I still to this day, you know, I have a, a very successful career, but I still to this day, there are some times when I'm like, oh, I got to keep working, like mm-hmm. just in case, like I don't ever want to be like in a, a position. Mindset. Yeah, yeah, I don't ever be in a position to be, yeah. um, you know, sometimes they'll call me with an emergency at work. One of my partners will call me and say, I really need to talk to you. There's a problem. And my first thought always is, okay, don't fire me. <laughs> they want to fire me. They love me. I do a lot of good things there. But like that is always like right there. Like I yeah. always am a little afraid of losing yeah. my control over my life, which which when, when I was a child, you realize how much finances play a role in that. But yeah. yeah. Now, I always think about the way your mom raised you and she just instilled this confidence in you, like this yeah. ability to, to this readiness to take on the world. Yeah. Uh, will you yes. share the piano story? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so my mom always told me, I think that, I mean, maybe she just was so traumatized from her own childhood and nobody believing in her ever, even though she had a lot of potential, that she almost went excessively over with that. So I can do anything. From the beginning, I was always told, like, you are the smartest person in the world. You are the most beautiful person in the world. You are the most able person in the world. You know, and I do live in reality. I do understand that probably those things aren't all true. But um, but I just had so much confidence. Um, interestingly, an attending of mine told another attending of mine not too long ago, if Heather lacks anything, it's not confidence. <laughs> you know, like I can fake it till I make it. But, um, but yeah, so I was in the, I think it was in the fourth grade. Um, it, I'm from Massachusetts, so in public school in Massachusetts in the winter, you know, it'd be really cold and snowy. And so sometimes for recess, you'd go outside and just deal with the snow. And sometimes for recess, you'd stay inside and do little things. And on this one particular day, they decided to do a talent show, like a makeshift, like last minute kind of thing, like have kids who knew how to sing, sing a little song or kids, whatever. And there was a piano in the middle of the room. (laughs) And I just looked at that piano and I just knew in my heart, that if I sat down to that piano, that I would be like a little Mozart, that I could right. just play. Now, and you've the, never the touched history a piano is I had never touched a piano <laughs> in my life. And I had never, we never had a piano in our house. My grandparents didn't have a piano. This is not like I had some familiarity with piano. I just saw the instrument and I, I had so much faith in my own ability to play the piano that I knew that it was possible. Um, so, of course, when it was time, I raised my hand, the biggest, you know, first one I want to go. I'm going to play a song on the piano. And I sit down and I think, <laughs> I remember the feeling of thinking, oh, shit. this isn't just like what do I do now like I'm sitting here all the classes sitting there and um I put my fingers on the keys and I thought it'll just come just start playing you know you can't stop now and 
whatever sounds would be made by a fourth grader who had never played the piano in her life, those sounds were made. And I don't know how long. And I remember thinking, this is really bad. This is not getting any better. How do I end it? Because right. you know, there's no ending. So I just kept playing. And then at some point, I just decided I wanted the misery to be over. And I just took my hands off the keys and went and sat down. Oh my gosh. And I will never forget. It's four, fourth grade. I'm 41 years old. I'm Josh Bridges, wherever you are, if you hear this, thank you. He clapped for me. He was the only <laughs> one. He started clapping. And then the other kids, of course, followed suit and clapped a little yeah. bit. And he, like, relieved the unbearable weight right. of tension that was in that room. But, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so. so good. Uh, I guess you were raised by – your mom was a Christian. Uh-huh. So you were raised a Christian yep. in a Christian home. Yep. Was faith just always part of your life? Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny to this day. I give my mom a hard time because she used to, like, force me to go to church. I mean, I was right. – I was – I – I remember my conversion. I was like five or six years old and I remember being in my bedroom and they had done an altar call that day at church and I wanted to go down for the altar call. And my mom said, you know, maybe you're a little bit too young, you know, because it was mostly like adults. And um, I went home that day after church and I went in my room and I closed the door and I said, Jesus, come into my heart. And then I ran out of the room and I went upstairs to my mom and I said, I asked Jesus into my heart and you can't even stop me. <laughs> you know? So my conversion was a little bit of rebellion, but um, yeah. but I do. I, I I absolutely believe that was my conversion because I think I was prompted by the Holy Spirit that day when mm. they had the altar card. I was like, I, I want to do this. This is what I want. Mm. Um, and really, I haven't looked back. I mean, I think I, uh, God gave me faith at that age. And I I think that um, one of the things that he has gi- given me as a gift that I don't understand and I can't explain is I really do just believe. Mm. Um you know, this people talk about science and, you know, all these things that um, maybe maybe are positive or negative for people of faith. Um, but for me, it doesn't even I didn't even think about it like that. It's just mm. I absolutely believe the, the Bible to be true in its entirety as a whole. And if anything comes that is kind of questions it, I say, well, I don't know. It's true. You know, I don't I don't for whatever reason, my scientific mind that asks the questions of everything else Hmm. doesn't really I don't really worry too much about those questions where maybe there's a discrepancy in the Bible or maybe there's a, you know, something missing or how did how do you explain the age of the earth or whatever? Those questions don't even bother me. And I yeah. So that there's um, a there's a story that somebody told me. um, I don't know if it's true or not, but they went they saw the the writer Annie Dillard give a reading and um you know her her stuff's pretty pretty bleak it's pretty dark and a lot of it's about like horrible things she's experienced and death and all this kind of stuff but she's a believer and somebody asked her the question like as much as you meditate on on death and darkness and all of this kind of yeah. stuff like how can you how can you hold on to faith in the midst or how do, how can you still believe in god in, yeah. in the midst of all that and her response was because i've met him Hmm. You know, and yeah, so it just kind of sounds yeah, like, yeah, it it's is. Just... I just, I just, I remember, I mean, I have, I'm not, I'm not someone who has a great memory for like childhood events or what have you, but I remember that moment. Like yeah. it was yesterday. I remember standing in my room. I remember the whole thing. And it, I mean, I know what that mm-hmm. was. And I, at, from then on, it just, it wasn't that, that has never been as you know, of course we all have struggles with our faith, but mm-hmm. that the actual faith part of it was so easy for me. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of sympathy empathy for christians who struggle with that part because i don't i wouldn't even begin to know how to help that you Mm -hmm. know because it just it just is natural that's Mm. that was a gift that i got and i'm thankful for yeah it's made my life easier yeah gift is the right word for that that's great this episode is brought to you in part by pittsburgh theological seminary pittsburgh theological seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community 
with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. Um, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? So, yeah. So that's the, um, you know, back when I was deciding that I had to be able to support myself. Um, I think when I was a kid, I thought of two careers that, that I knew of, you know, when you're eight years old, you can think of two things that would support yourself, which is a doctor or a lawyer. Um, and so um, I kind of, I thought I would do one of those two things. That's, those were the two careers paths that I was set, determined for. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I just think that at some point I decided, okay, I'm just going to be a doctor. I don't, I, I definitely didn't understand what being a doctor was about. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't really have any doctors in my life that I looked up to or knew about. It really was just, I had this idea that that was a career where I could support myself and it probably is something I would like. Hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know why, I don't know what about it made me decide it, but it was pretty, I was young um, hmm. and all through high school, I knew that's what I was going to do. When I looked for colleges all through college, I was pre-med and um so it, that was always my goal. But I think, too, one thing that happened was when I said that at age eight, I'm going to be a doctor, my mom said, oh, you're going to be a doctor, you know? <laughs> and so then I spent the rest of my life being told I was already basically a doctor. So we just yeah. had to go through, you know, pass through, through the hoops. The yeah. um, and so I think that, um, I don't know, I think that there's some benefit to encouraging kids in their, their dreams, you know, mm. their crazy dreams, because I do think that some kids will be able to do it because they, they, they believe and so it happens yeah so you go to college uh where'd you go to college at auburn university okay war eagle Eagle. i guess i don't know i don't watch football anymore but i think it's not not so good this year yeah uh and that's where you met chip um no so well yeah so my husband um we i was in college and i was actually supposed to go on a mission trip to china Hmm. with um a group from campus crusade and um this was my you know wonderful thing that I was going to do in college and my mom who she has a lot of anxiety that's one of her character traits and um she would call me crying I mean I had I had filled out the like support letters and I had done all the things and all my friends were going and we were all like ready to go and she called me one night just crying she was like I just know that you are going to be put in a Chinese prison and you will (laughs) never be released I just know that's what's going to happen God has like laid that on my heart and you cannot go (laughs) and I was like okay mom but I mean you know she very she said no to very few things in my life so when she was just like I you can't go yeah. I was like, okay. So last minute, you know, you're uh, college. I was a college freshman, and it was very. It was late spring. It was last minute. I'm like, well, what am I going to do this summer now? Um, and so there was a summer camp down the road from our house that I had grown up hmm. seeing, but never been to. Um, and so I said, well, I guess I could be a counselor at you know the camp. And um, and then the first morning of, um, so I decided I wanted to do lifeguard, be a lifeguard. And so the first morning of lifeguard training, I walked in, which I'm always late to everything. That's one of my like worst character traits. <laughs> and so I was late to lifeguard training. And uh, the instructor was Chip Lewis, who's oh, my husband. Now great. of almost 20 years. So, that's great. There you go. Yeah. Sarah and I hit 20 in December. I know. So it's crazy. I know you always have an edge on us. Just a little bit. <laughs> well, that's, that's because we got married when we were children. Yes. So. Yes. I was actually a child too, but Chip was a little more mature. Yeah. That's great. So it, tell me, so you go, you go to Auburn, you moved to Louisville for medical school, right? Yeah, well, I went to medical school in Alabama. Oh, okay. Um, and then we moved to um, Louisville for, for, residency. Re- for residency. So my husband was looking for a place to go to seminary. And then I was looking for a residency program in OBGYN that I liked. And we mm-hmm. kind of found a match in Louisville. What made you yeah. pick OBGYN? So um, I think a lot of things. Um, it's really interesting thinking about my medical school. So during medical school is when you kind of pick your specialty. Um, and it's interesting thinking about my medical school training in light of today's age. Um, so I'm not – it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was in – I was in medical school during um, 2000 to 2004. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's almost 20 years, but not too cl- too far away. But the just the culture of things was so different. And so 
there were a couple of incidents that happened that made me not want to take care of male patients. Um, mm. I was in the ER one time and had to put a catheter in a man. And, you know, it's not you're, you're not necessarily alone in there. It was me and a nurse. But I it was the he made me so uncomfortable mm. that I I almost couldn't go back in the room. And just the things he said and the way the whole thing unfolded, it was a really traumatic experience. And I just thought, I don't want to take care of men. I don't want to do that. And so that was a that was one of the main like that really impacted mm. me in a negative way. Um, and I thought I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm in that position again. But the other one was I really liked surgery. And so I mm. just love being in the operating room. And so once you kind of decide most most medical students at some point decide, do you want to do surgical specialty or not? Mm-hmm. And once you kind of decide that, then you narrow down within the surgical specialties. But so I knew I wanted to do a surgical specialty and then at that point I I think I just said, nah, I just don't want to take care of men. And so um, so then that was pretty simple after that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think people hear OBGYN and they, they think of it as, or they imagine, you know, you're just delivering babies all yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's of, that, a lot of that. And I like yeah. that. That um, is a big part of my my practice. And you can kind of pick what you want to do within OBGYN. I mean, there's specialties where you don't deliver any babies. I mean, there's infertility, and then there's um, GYN oncology, which is only cancer surgery, and you don't do any deliveries. And then mm-hmm. there's um, some some surgical specialties that you can do within the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really enjoy obstetrics. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly what I like about OBGYN in general is that um, you can see a person from when they're, you know, 15, 16 years old and then take care of them their whole life and get to know Mm. their mom and their sisters and their cousins and their friends and, you know, deliver them. And then one of my partners, I'll go to deliver a patient and I'll say, oh, um, you know, Dr. Baldwin's on call tomorrow, so he'll come check in on you. And they'll say, oh, Dr. Baldwin delivered me, you Mm. know, and so that kind of stuff. Just Mm -hmm. it's fun to kind of have that, have those generational care. And then also just to know people. Um, I had a patient I operated on yesterday who um, she and I were in the hospital together when we had our babies. So Mm. she had her baby on a Monday. I had mine on a Tuesday. And I wheeled my little baby in the cart down the hall to go visit her, you know. And like it just, I mean, it's fun to be in that stage of life with your patients. And I think it's fun to kind of go through those things together when I see my patients. And, you know, our kids are on swim team together. or They go to the classes. Or my kids in their classes will have other kids of babies that I delivered. Mm. Um, I enjoy that part of it. Mm. Um, And I still do enjoy the surgery. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the job. But um, Hmm. but yeah, it's it's nice. You get to do both. You can have a little bit of both. Does it get to a point where it feels normal to slice someone open? Yes. 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 It's just it's just a normal thing. It's the most normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. I I have a patient who um, works for um, Coke, like. You know, and I was like, me doing this to you is like you like putting a things of Coke on the shelf. I mean, yeah. like I, my brain doesn't have any, like, I don't think my heart rate even goes up. Like it just, it's mm. so normal, but it's 20, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's always been true, but it, it becomes very, very normal. Mm. I mean, not that it's ever routine. I mean, you always are concerned about your patient. You always want to, you know, if somebody's, you know, and there's always, there's never surgery without bleeding and there's never mm-hmm. um, not risk with what you're doing. And so you always have that in your mind, but, but I don't imagine it would be possible to do this job always on high alert. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't, you can't maintain it's, I mean, it'd kill you. I think if mm-hmm. you had your adrenaline going 24 seven all the time. Yeah. And so you have to kind of over time, just learn to kind of turn right. it down. Cause there's a lot of life and death situations. Yeah. For- yeah. Yeah. For uh, your practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll come home sometimes and I'll be like, sorry, I'm late. That's some, some lady was trying to bleed to death, you know, but <laughs> but actually she was, you know. Sure. And so, I mean, but yeah, I think you this this uh, one of the things about the specialty that is unique is that um, the expectation is perfection. Mm-hmm. And so I think no everybody who comes in to your office on the first day they're pregnant, what they expect is they will have a full-term, healthy vaginal delivery with no complications. That's mm-hmm. what they expect. I mean, that's what we see in our mind, especially if the patient is healthy. They don't expect to have a miscarriage. They don't expect to have a C-section. They don't expect to have, I mean, nobody expects anything to go wrong. They kind of have this, most people have this kind of idea of perfection of what should happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our job is to make that happen as much as is possible. There are times when I'll be in no delivery and I'll be like, Jesus, um, it's the, I, I'm at the end of what I can do. You mm. have to take over, you know. And so I do. I appreciate that. Um, 
I have skills and abilities to do things that can can help people and can save people. But there there does there is an end to the human ability to accomplish certain tasks, you know. Yeah. And if somebody is bleeding to death, I can do all the things that I'm trained to do and know how to do and things that are just reflexive and I don't even have to think about. But at the end of the day, you know, I can't make their platelets function. I can't make mm-hmm. their blood vessels clamp down when they're supposed to. I can't I can't do that. God has to do that. And so there is some some degree at which your your skills and your competence are are the reason mm-hmm. that your patient does well. And then there's some degree that it really has absolutely nothing to do with you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you have to I'm assuming like when you lose a patient or when there's a miscarriage or when those things like how how do you process that in through the lens of your faith like yeah. what what do you well i think um fortunately in my specialty there is a lot of happiness mm-hmm. so i think that um there's a lot of mercy in that to us in our specialty because we see, have so much happiness and so many good things happen yeah. and even when there's loss when there's happiness after loss i mean i one of some of my patients that I am most close to are patients who have gone through really horrible things mm. and then they have a happy thing happen or who've lost babies or what have you and then they go on to have a baby and or have a you know just good things happen to them so I think that there's a lot of grace and a lot of happiness mm-hmm. that helps kind of offset those hard days but I think that we always say in OGYN, we always take credit for things we shouldn't, and we blame ourselves <laughs> for things we shouldn't. You know, we do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when things go well and things are doing well, I think one of the ways I guard myself against the troubles of this job best is when things are going well and everybody's doing great, I have to take a moment and remember it's not because you're so awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't do that. Like, yes, you are good at your job. Yes, you are working hard. Yes, you are doing all the things you need to do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, there are other factors at hand. There are other things that are that are contributing to the success of and the health of your patients. And And so if I can do that better when things are going well, I do the other side better when things aren't going well. Mm. But, you know, I think one of the hardest parts of medicine is that you are actually human. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tell my patients, until somebody invents a robot that can do this job, I will, I will fail you. You know, there's never going to be a time when I'm going to do everything perfectly. It's just not possible. But there are times when I could read more or I could be more up to date on literature. I could do and when I am when I am confronted with those moments, I say, OK, and then I go and I read more. Hmm. Or there are times when I could um, do more of you know, continuing medical education, I could go to more conferences, or I could do these things. And so I do those things to say, okay, I have a responsibility to my patients to know these things or to learn more. Um, so you do want to take responsibility for that. But at the same time, yeah, it's it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And mm-hmm. I think that is the thing that probably most people would say is the biggest cause of burnout in OBGYN is this, this burden of... And a patient the other day have a problem with her delivery and nothing, anything could have been predicted ahead of time. Nothing, anything could. And probably long term, everybody's going to be fine. But I was on call. Patient had the problem. And then the next day we were supposed to do something with the kids. And we were literally out with the children having this wonderful day. And the entire time I kept looking at my kids and thinking, why do I get these healthy kids? Hmm. Why, why did that happen to me, you know? And I couldn't even enjoy hmm. those moments with my kids because I had so much just, I was just so burdened by what my patient had gone through. Right. And I just felt like it's just like a sinning against her to even enjoy my day, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I know it's not true, but it's, that's really hard. And I don't, I don't know, I don't have an answer to that. I think you, but I do think on the days when things are going well, not taking credit for that so much mm-hmm. does help because if right. you start thinking it's all about you, it's really that's really going to bite you later. Right? So. Yeah, I bet. Um, what are some things that you think people misunderstand or misrepresent about your profession? Oh, I don't know. You'd have mm. to tell me what uh, what people say, and I'll tell you <laughs> if it's true or not. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, conspiracy theories about medicine. So mm. I could say in general, I don't know, specific to OBGYN, I think most people who um, 
most people like their OBGYNs mm -hmm. because it's kind of, it's a place you go during some happy times of your life. So I think that there's a relationship there. And I think most of my patients would say, you know, we're friends. They would, they would trust my competence. They would trust my, you know. And so I don't think that they think of me as being like, you know, uh, getting kickbacks from big pharma or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think in medicine in general, that kind of stuff, the mm -hmm. this conspiracy theories about, you know, pharmaceutical industries and mm -hmm. insurance companies and the doctors in cahoots with that. And I mean, I think that stuff is kind of a common mm -hmm. complete misunderstanding yeah. um, of how that works. And um yeah, I mean, I yeah, there are doctors that do get paid by pharmaceutical companies to like give lectures or to promote their drug or what have you. Mm -hmm. But to be able to do that, I mean, you have to like you have to tell your patient. It has to be like written forms. You have to sign a form that says I understand my doctor is receiving money from. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you have to do to like reveal your you know potential bias. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very strongly regulated industry. I mean, medicine right. is very, there are so many people watching what I do. Right. Um, we actually, things that I'm being tracked currently right now, um, so C-section rates. So, you know, we don't want to have a lot of C-sections. So the hospital tracks that. Um, episiotomies, people don't want to have episiotomies. And American College of UN has kind of come around and said, eh, maybe episiotomies aren't the best thing to do on everybody. So they, they track those. Uh, fourth degree, somebody tears, has a big tear when they deliver. And so, okay, if you think about those three things, like if you have a nine-pound baby, you're either going to have an episiotomy, a fourth degree, or a C-section. Like you can't really have a big baby and not have one of those things. But what I'm not allowed to have any of those three things. So that's mm. my fault. You know, mm -hmm. that you had, you ate, you know, 100 Cheetos bags in, during your pregnancy <laughs> and you have an iPad. I mean, I'm saying that because I did eat, I, one point Chip made a joke that one of my child's hair was going to be orange because I ate so many Cheetos. <laughs> but, so I'm not judging them for their Cheeto consumption. I'm just saying I am being judged for their Cheeto consumption. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, the things that we, I don't think people understand how, how many people are criticizing, watching, mm -hmm. you know, it's really it's it's really it bad yeah. and it's get, it's getting worse insurance companies are refusing to pay for procedures if you you know if you order this thing and you haven't done this thing or they refuse to do let you you know do certain surgeries that you know the patient needs but then if the patient doesn't have the surgery that she needs and uh, then it's your fault because you didn't do the surgery she needed yeah. um so there's there's a lot of that and no, i don't think much. people understand how um, how closely we all are being watched and how we we wouldn't begin to weigh. People do, I, sometime, one time a patient said to me something about, you know, well, I know, you know, people do a C-section just so they can go get to their golf game, you know. Or, mm. I mean, that's kind of, that was a little, I don't know so much nowadays, but that is kind of a, a, a perception that people have that, mm -hmm. you know, we do things to get out of work. Um, it's like, oh, man, we are smart mm -hmm. enough to do a job where we could go play golf if we wanted to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if we wanted to leave at five, we would have picked something else. Right. You know, we do this because we care about the people. And Well, one of the things we've talked about over the years is that for you, one of the one of the challenges has been being a member at a church with your patients. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, you know, the, the fact that like, you're trying to go to church with your family sure. and sometimes patients come up to you with yeah. issues and like sure. how, how do you, how have you rec reckoned with that over it's the years? A, yeah, it's a hard balance. I mean, I think I go through seasons of this similar to anybody. I mean, I can imagine, especially, you know, you've been a pastor. Mm -hmm. Are you still Pastor, yeah, you pastor. Now, okay, pastor. you're a pastor. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to say. One no, time right. I told we have this friend who's also a pastor, and one time I said something about the pastor at the church, and he was like, I'm a pastor at that church. And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know. We have a weird church where there's lots of pastors. I don't know. But anyway, um, but I'm sure. I mean, it's the same. I try. One of the things I try and remember is it's not just me. This mm -hmm. is not a unique problem to me. This is I'm not the only one having to deal with this kind of balance of, you know, your work and your home mm -hmm. and all that. I one of the things I do from time to time and recently I think is going to be permanent is just getting off of social media mm -hmm. um, because that's a real place where people really just want to reach you when you're home and relaxing. And mm -hmm. so I find if I can have my house be free of that. I probably do a lot better. Mm. Um, and so like on Sunday, if somebody comes up to me and asks me a question about, you know, something that happened or something that's going on with them, I think I deal with it a lot better if on Saturday I wasn't on Facebook getting asked 1,500 questions. Mm -hmm. So I think completely like abandoning social media has given me much more 
downtime Mm -hmm. mentally. It's just the mental thing. You know, you just don't want to always be on. Um, One of the fun things about having on Facebook is um, debunking MLM MLM promises of curing cancer with essential oils and all of that. Yes, I know. And so that's the other trouble, too, because I am from Massachusetts. (laughs) And so I tend to be really blunt. I just say exactly what I think. (laughs) And I also am kind of like can get a little prone to getting angry. And I just have found I'm so much less angry when I'm off of social media. So that's, but yeah, it's hard. I know. And um, there's a book I read recently called um, 10 Reasons to 10 reasons to cancel all of your social media accounts uh-huh. immediately and the the 10th reason was because it's making you an asshole. yes oh yes <laughs> it's so true i mean i am a better human being without question hmm. because i found like i was like hating people like there were people that i really hated and i'm like you don't hate that person you just right. hate what's happening and what they're you know how they're, they're putting selling. things out there yeah mm-hmm. and but then i thought then i do i am socially emotionally mature enough to have the moment of saying people probably hate me. (laughs) So it's not just that I'm seeing all these people that are annoying, but I'm sure people look at my stuff and are like, oh God, that girl's so annoying. (laughs) And so I don't want to be that person. You know, I want, because when people know me in real life, either they like me or they don't, but they move on. But when it's in social media, it just kind of just stays there. I don't know. So for me, that's what's, uh, that has helped a lot. I feel like when I'm approached at church now, it's a little bit easier for me to just kind of, because, and then the other thing is too, you feel like, I mean, in some ways, in most of the ways that what I do for work is I am a physician, but also I do run a small business. You know, it's me and my partners. And mm-hmm. so if people don't come see me, then I can't feed my kids, you know. And so part of me does feel a little bit like, you know, the guy who builds houses. And if you ask him about your house on a Sunday morning, he's probably going to answer you because he wants your business, you know. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, there is a little bit of that where I do feel like, yeah, I mean, they come see me, they pay money to see me and mm-hmm. to ask my opinions. And so I do feel a little bit indebted to my patients Mm -hmm. because they have helped me have a successful career. And so I do feel a little bit of you do owe them a little bit of yourself. If Mm -hmm. they need a moment of your time, you can give it to them. You know, Um, when the kids were younger, it was a lot harder. But now that they're older, but when, you know, I'd I'd have one baby on my hip, I'd be pregnant. And then the other baby's crying and the snotty nose and somebody be like, can I talk to you about my husband cheating on me? <laughs> I'd be like, oh, God, you poor thing. But I really cannot talk about that right now. Like, look. But, you know, I mean, and so it's never, nobody ever comes up to me with, like, oh, hey, I've got this, you know, like, pimple. I mean, it's always some, like, really awful, serious, emotionally mm-hmm. laden thing. And so, um, so I want to be able to, like, give them what they need and have a moment mm-hmm. and kind of talk to them. Um, but. So I feel like that there are places that I can do that better than others. The office obviously is the best place, but sure. the worst place is on social media. And so if yeah. I get out of that, it's it's better. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I okay. have a question for you, okay, Mike. All right. Do you know about furries? <laughs> do you know about this? This is people who have a fetish yes. for... No, no, it's not a fetish. It's... Okay. Oh, my gosh. It's an identity. This is a... These are people. This is who, why. This is why I put a warning at the beginning of this episode <laughs> about what we're going to talk our, about. Is this nothing? This is not I, my job. Is I have a lot of sexual so things in my job, but this is not this. sexual. This is a true identity disorder. But we're not going to call it a disorder because it's 2019 and nothing's a right. disorder. This is just okay. So. We were in at a swim meet this past weekend and staying with a friend and she has two daughters who are high school, middle school age. And she says to my daughter, we're in the car, it's the three of us. And she looks back at my daughter who is 12 and in the seventh grade. And she says, uh, hey, Avery, uh, do you have any furries in your school? And I had never heard the word before. And Avery just real nonchalant says, yeah, there's a couple. And my friend says to me, you know, do you do you know what these furries are? And I was like, um, I've never heard of this before. And I was like, Avery, what is this? So apparently it's, it, I mean, it could be anybody, but in high school and middle school, this is a thing now where people don't believe, they don't identify with their, not their gender, but their species. So you identify instead of as human, but as a certain animal. And so like girls, apparently my daughter's middle school, this like they wear the cat ears and they've got a tail and they'll like purr in the hallway. Um, my friend says that at her middle school, high school in 
Indianapolis area, um, there's quite a few that actually crawl on the ground because Whoa. they, you know, their their particular animal doesn't walk. Um, there's like people who do their hair like you know like a peacock or what have you, and they make the noises. So her so we were asking her daughter about this because they have more than we do. We have yeah. a little bit less. We're a little bit more country back here in uh, my part of Indiana. Um, but um, yeah, she said, oh yeah, she said we'll be walking down the hallway and somebody will be meowing, somebody will be barking, somebody will be making a rooster sound. Like that's just like normal. But the fact that my daughter was like so nonchalant about it, she's like, yeah, there's a couple of furries in my in my grade. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, God. So I had forgotten to tell Chip about this. So I remembered one day. And so I call him on the phone. And I didn't realize I was on speakerphone. (laughs) So I call him. And I said, Chip, do you know about furries? And he was like, furries? No. So I explained to him what furries are. And I said, but the most important part of this story is you cannot tell Aiden. Aiden is our second daughter. Who's right there? Aiden is my mother's artistic yeah. Uh, grandchild who um, is very much would become a furry. <laughs> and so I said, she's 10. So I said, you cannot tell Aiden because she will be a furry. Well, of course, Aiden's homesick from school and I'm on speakerphone. So of course, of course. Aiden is right there. And if I hear in the background, Bok, bok. <laughs> not only does she not even respond to my comment about her becoming a furry, she immediately becomes a furry. Right. So then I came home from work and we had to talk about it. And I said, Aiden, so what do you think about all this? And she said, bok, bok. <laughs> and I said, oh, God. So now oh. I know I have a furry in my house. No. And, and, and what was the question? <laughs> so had you heard of furries? Oh, that was the question. Heard. Yes. So that's my story. So well, it's, that's... it's. I mean, it's interesting. Like, and again, we don't have to go. We don't have to go here. I mean, you want to go there. But if you think about it, like the lot, like yes. the disrespect for create the the body as it yes. was created. Yeah. Um, that has led to like so much sexual confusion and, yes. and other. Yeah. Like, it's just as reasonable I know. for somebody who, yes. if if I can be a woman. Why, why can't you why be, a rooster? I be a rooster? I know. So, exactly. Yeah. I just think um, I was thinking about it. and I was like, oh, man, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. But I just do not think the first century church had furries, <laughs> had their kids had been furries. I don't think they did. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Hey, thanks for listening. Cultivated is a production of Narrativo Group. You can learn more about us at narrativogroup.com. We make podcasts. We'd love to help you out. This episode was recorded and produced by me. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.